Okay, that should be a little quieter. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba to news. Episode 274 is recorded live February 25th, 2016. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where winter has returned with a vengeance. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Uh, doing pretty well. I uh, did a lot of uh, shoveling snow today. Yeah, that, and this is what we call heart attack snow. It is heavy. Wet and heavy is correct. I, I had my dive buddy who happens to have a snow plow come over and he plowed my driveway for me this morning because I couldn't even make it out to work. It's rare for me not to, to be out to work even in the worst weather, but this is just heavy stuff. Well, the snowblower doesn't work in this. It's it's ice. It's like uh, doing slush. Oh, yeah. It jams it up like quick. It's real so heavy. And with the what's shovel, it, what's, you're doing one-third of a scoop, so you can lift it. Yes, uh, that's that's true. And the ground had actually warmed up after he had plowed. Every place where he had plowed, the ground melted right away. So I'm I'm bare to the ground. But on the road, there's some spots where the road actually has six to eight inches of snow where it's drifted and gotten packed to where the plows are just riding over the top of it. They're not even plowing down down to pavement. Well, I did shovel mine really well. I took my time, and it's totally dry. Yeah, yeah. it was, a, it was actually a beautiful day other than the really snowy in the beginning. It, and it started yesterday. We, we got this warning yesterday. I went into work, and there was no snow on the ground. And by noon, it had started snowing at a pretty good clip. And when I came home, it was one of those where you knew that when you got home, you better not go anywhere else. And then it's slowly calmed down a little bit. The wind was really ripping because that's kind of the dangerous combination. When you have the heavy snow and the wind is going hard enough to drift heavy snow, that's when it gets to be pretty bad. But Well, did you look at the lake? I did not. How how's the lake Chicago going? said, and I can't believe it, they were having 25-plus foot waves. Wow. And it was, uh, you know, overcoming. It was actually over, you know, how that parkway goes around mm-hmm. by the lakeshore? It was flooding that. Really? Yeah, I hadn't seen any pictures. Well, you know that makes sense because this wind was coming directly out of the north, and it's Absolutely. rare. We usually get it out of the west, but west or even south sometimes. But when it comes out of the north, it had the whole Lake Michigan to build up on, and if it was even a little bit east, then that means Chicago could have really gotten it. Yeah, well, around here, because of the wind and the heavy snow, we had a lot of lines go down because of the tree limbs that broke off. So yeah. my daughter got home early, uh, even cook plant yesterday. Uh, all nine essential persons were released. Wow. Yeah, that doesn't happen often. No. Uh, I, I had the AP guys, uh, I, I put a call in with them because about, so I couldn't make it to work. I had somebody come and plow me out and, uh, he and his wife came in and we were going to have some coffee and the power went out and the power came on just about two or three hours ago. So I ended up going into work anyway. <laughs> so I went into work and put in a full day. Well, at least at my house, I have gas on the uh, stove so I can at least make hot coffee. 
Oh no, we we couldn't make coffee. The the little Keurig maker maker when you you hit the little button, it wouldn't do things. What, what they call those first world problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. First story we have is kind of a sad one. A famed Great Lake shipwreck diver, John Steele, 80, has passed away. During the 1780s, John and his diving partners made numerous shipwreck discoveries through the region, including wrecks of the steel freighter Superior City in Lake Superior, the schooner Cornelia B. Windy 8 in Lake Huron, and Car Ferry, Milwaukee in Lake Michigan. Plans for memorial are in the works, and John is asked to have his ashes spread over the lake in the spring. Did, did you happen to know him? I knew of him, and I have seen him, but he wouldn't know me from Adam. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's always sad, but, uh, you know, some of these early divers are getting up there. He was 80, and that's... Yeah, yeah. We have Rancho Cardova couple among the rescuers at the Pearl Harbor chopper crash. I don't know if you happen to see that video. Yes, I did. Uh, you're talking about the one where the young man uh, didn't make it? Did they say he didn't make it? I, I thought they got everybody out. Well, I understood listening to the guy who did the initial video that three people popped up and then a little later a fourth person popped up and that uh, was the one that was injured and I understood passed away later. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. But when you saw it, it's amazing anybody survived. Uh, helicopters are relatively safe because you can counter rotate. Uh, but when you, you know, it's, it's not a controlled landing and then when you fall in water on top of that, you make, you accelerate it. But, uh, it turns out that Juan and Alicia Valero of uh, Rancho Cordova couple happened to be in the right place, right time, were able to jump in and help the survivors. They're waiting for their tour. The USS Arizona Memorial to start when it happened. The single-engine helicopter was carrying four tourists, and the pilot before it plunged in the ocean 20 feet from shore is definitely not something we expected to see right in front of us, said Alicia. You could smell the overpowering gasoline. I could see the helicopter was flipping and going down. Juan, a Navy veteran, certified scuba diver, and... Alice, a critical care nurse, immediately responded. We cannot believe it. Ran away when we heard it. We saw the people rushing in. My husband was running into the water. There's got to be some people inside and need some help, said Alicia. I knew immediately people are going to need help in the water. That's why I went in at full sprint, jumped right in the water, said Juan. In the end, everyone was safe on shore. The Valero said the rescue was a collaborative effort with lots of strangers helping rescuers rescue those on the chopper. It didn't say whether or not it was because of the, uh, for drowning or not, because it hit pretty much down. And if you're sitting down and you hit flush like that, you know, you've got a much better chance of surviving. So yeah, there's it, a little it, more to it. Yeah. They, they, I, I hadn't heard. I didn't realize that somebody had actually died. Yeah. And then a follow up. If you remember, we were talking about uh, the bottle that was found in, was that Vancouver? Yes. Or Nova Scotia government. Uh, the Nova Scotia government says it has no intentions on seizing the century-old Alexander Keith's beer bottle found by the scuba diver in the northwest arm of Halifax last week. John Krauss made discovery after he shoved his arm into the silt in the foot of the Atlantic Ocean. The bottle's markings to date between 1872 and 1890, the corks that indicate it was a bottle by the Alexandria Keith Brewery. Sean... Keen, Special Places Coordinator with the Department of Communities, Culture, and Heritage, said there's no intention on seizing the bottle. That being said, he encourages Krauss to bring in the museum so archaeological staff can take a look at it. He's in, 
it is an interesting item, and we certainly like our curatorial staff to have a look at the bottle and examine it. The law in Nova Scotia is similar to other jurisdictions. The public is not permitted to expressly search for historic objects. If one is discovered accidentally, finders are supposed to cease excavation and notify government officials. The laws mainly protect all our archaeological sites in the province and to protect artifacts that would be associated with those sites and also fossils actually in the province, said McKean. I, I didn't understand where he found it. Was it in an archaeological site? It or sounded it, like he was just in the river and found it. What I'm guessing is he's doing like we do and you're grubbing. So while you're not archaeologically digging or specifically hunting a site, you are wherever you're going in the water, you're looking and what you find, you find. So I could see there being a gray area, but our interpretation has always been, and it's probably maybe a U.S. or even a Michigan law, but is that this is navigational waterways that are going to be dredged so there can be no expectation of that's a preserved site, or even if you find it, that's where it occurred. Because a bottle got thrown in, it was trash of a, it's as its original intent, and then it can flow down the river and then be dredged up and moved around. So we're basically doing cleaning. It just depends. You know, if it's a bottle that's six months old, it's trash. But if it's a bottle, if it's a year old, it's treasure or archaeologically significant. And I have no problem with sharing those objects. But as we've pointed out before, if they're that interested, they could go looking. And that bottle that, if we didn't find it, who's to say that bottle will be there next year? I'm curious also what is, that's not even, what, 100 years old, a little over? What's yeah. considered What's considered uh, significant? Yeah. Well, the and they didn't even say it was, and they said they wouldn't seize it, but they're making a point that they could. And if you read a little bit further down the article, he says, uh, let's see, in terms uh they would like to look at, examine it, and determine that it was something that would be of interest to have as part of the province collection. We'd ask that it be left to the museum. Now, this is a museum curator. We're not going to seize it, but if we really like it, we're going to keep it. But they've, they've kind of worded it that we're, we're going to ask you to leave it here, even though we could be nasty. Well, I read some of the comments afterwards, and it talked about sometimes the government acts too quick, a diver, and Newfoundland found a rare Portuguese mariner's astrolabe in 1981, which was made in 1628. After some discussion, I believe a warrant was issued and the astrolabe confiscated by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for the government. In 1983, the same diver discovered another astrolabe and succeeded in getting his demands met before he would reveal where it was. All he wanted was the astrolabes to be kept at a local museum in part, off Basque during the summer for a couple of months. Then there's another one back here that says, The government slash crown never owned most of the historical antique objects buried in Nova Scotia because the objects originally belonged to private owners and are mostly buried under privately owned land submerged underwater on privately owned shipwrecks. The government should be required to pay full appraised financial value of historic slash antique objects that are found on private property or by private finders. Private owners and finders should keep the objects they find if the government, let me see what else it says, does not want to buy them. So it's interesting. I'd like to see the laws, but it's generally in our country. It's like 
if there's any money to be made, the government wants it. Yeah. Yeah, especially after you've you, you've you've taken the risk out of it. Yeah. The, it, it, when, once you find it and bring it up, all that's really left is preservation. The cost of discovery has already been known, yeah. so they have no risk. Where if they wanted to go out and look at it, they could spend millions and never find anything. Well, it said here a law that, which permits the government of Nova Scotia or the government of Newfoundland to seize objects ranging from rusty nails to one million dollar diamond rings that are found on private property or by private Finders is unjust, violates private property rights, and should be repealed. Yeah. So it, it, it sounds like they got the power. They're going to keep the power. So the key item is when you find gold, you didn't find any gold. What gold? I didn't see anything. And uh, when you go back up and you listen to what he said, uh, I mean, really what he wanted was he actually wanted somebody at the museum to be interested and look at it. He says, I don't want to go to court over a bottle. The solution might please Krauss, who last week said if he had to give it up, he'd be interested in having the bottle placed in the museum and shared with the public. So he was actually concerned they are just going to take it. It was going to be stored in a vault. And it sounds like it normally is. There's another comment under Chili Dipper. That's who this guy is. He said, the main point is really to emphasize to people that searching for heritage objects is not permitted without a heritage research permit. I agree. If you're looking for something on that kind of ground, yes. Uh, he said, the main point is most discoveries are made by hobbyists. I suggest you plot the number of discoveries and notice the downward trend in them since assassinine law was brought in. Yeah, that's most a good every point. historical wreck found was by salvage divers. When this law was packed, uh, passed, they all packed it in. Find your own. Right. Yeah, well, now if you find something, it's better to not tell anybody about and just come and visit it every year in the bottom. Yeah. And I know why they did it. You know, they didn't, they, they want to have a little bit of organization. If somebody, say somebody's going to go and search for a specific item or location, there could be a little bit of coordination and a plan of, okay, when you get it, what are you going to do with it? You're going to bring up the leather boot and let it disintegrate on, on land? Are you going to recover it? Are you going to preserve it in place? You know, preserve it in place? How do you do that? I just leave it there. But that's not preserving in place, though, is it? Uh, not necessarily. You could be fine then for knowing about it, not doing something to protect it. <laughs> you knowingly let an antique go to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. I still think it's better. I mean, how many times have we seen uh, Woodstock anchors brought up and then the, the Woodstocks just disintegrate and... Yeah, by the state. Yes. <laughs> yeah, by the state. Let's add that in there. Yeah. Um, I, I figured this one would get would get a little conversation going. <laughs> Yeah. And then we have a group out of Chicago. Imagine diving helps the disabled explore the water. Uh, Bianca and dozens of other adults and children have experienced diving through the work of Imagine Diving, a nonprofit that was formed in 2012 to introduce people with disabilities to recreational therapeutic benefits to scuba. As a means of inspiring and building confidence in those who face everyday challenges of living with difficulties, disabilities, According to its website, the group held its second annual fundraiser Sunday in Oaklawn Masonic Temple, featuring a pig roast and silent auction. It was attended by more than 100 people, including Karen Schmidt and her daughter. Imagine does diving instructions at the pool Evergreen Park High School, and is being underwater can be extremely therapeutic for some people with physical disability. Bob Hemminger, the group's president, said, you actually achieve weightless state and relieve pressure on the skeletal structure. It alleviates pain for some. Hemminger said. 
For some who've never tried scuba diving before, it can be a mind-blowing experience, but there can be some real anxiety about being submerged and breathing underwater, he said. The organization encouraged family members to also become certified divers, which Schmidt did, along with becoming certified as a buddy diver to assist her daughter on dives. She said Bianca has Creduchat syndrome, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, a rare genetic disorder that has displayed the development of her daughter's motor skills has left her basically nonverbal. Schmidt said she and her daughter have scuba excursions in Hague Quarry, a popular dive in Kankakee, and in Florida Keys where they saw tropical fish and caught a quick glimpse of a nurse shark. She loves getting down there and exploring. She's amazed at the fish swimming by. Schmidt said she had never tried scuba diving before her daughter started in 2012, and I didn't think it was anything I would be interested in. Imagine Diving works with the Oaklawn, Oaklawn Park District and Special Recreation Athletic Support Association, which supports the district's special recreation programming. John Simone, president of the association treasurer Imagine Diving, says he has been diving for 42 years and is certified as a diving buddy assisting with divers in the pool. Volunteers who work with divers receive specialized training and assistance someone with disability, which goes as far as stimulating, sim, simulating, goes as far as simulating for the instructor and dive buddy with limitations of disability so you know how they would react in the water. Might include wearing a blacked out swim mask to simulate vineless or being submerged with a bound arm or wearing a weight belt to mimic a physical limitation of someone who's quadriplegic, he said. The face of the divers make it worthwhile. It's, I think it's a nice cause. You can take a look at their website, www.imaginediving.org. Uh, they've got about 12 people in the organization and we can always use more help, but it makes me wonder why they didn't join or work with one of the other groups that are doing the same thing. Because you've got Dive Heart and uh, there's a few other programs. That set, was it Suds is another one? Yeah. So why would you, uh, I, the question I would ask him is, why would you go out and do the work of starting your own when there's some that appear to be well-run and, and, and well-organized? Unless there's, there's a, no one near you. Right. And maybe it was difficult to start a chapter of one of those other groups? Yeah. I did notice, I was trying to look that up to see certified scuba diving buddy, what that really meant. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't find it just doing a quick random check. But I do remember uh, when they were doing it up north uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, in Holland. Specialized training for the individual who wanted to dive with those in- individuals with handicaps. So you'd have to learn, like they were talking about, depending on the disability, you'd have to be conversant and familiar with how to work with that. Right, because there are some who, you have some who are who are maybe just paralyzed the waist down and have more ability than others, and there are some who have really no motor skills whatsoever where they are along for the ride and you're doing everything from controlling their buoyancy and making sure they're breathing and able to see and comfortable. So it, it would certainly be a challenge to be able to handle that because you gotta you got to be able to, to manage yourself and another person. Right. And that's that, like if they were blind or something like this, you've got to have good communications on the surface to make sure you both understand what's going to go on. So it, it's not just something because you, you're a diver, you can take somebody with you. Exactly. So n- nice program. Take a look at them. And let's see. We have a, is this the Pacific Seahorse? Oh, Where's the hyperbaric chamber? Did I miss that? Yes, but I tried to get to it myself, and oh, it was a weird place. Yeah, I, I couldn't get to it, and and what it is, what we're talking about. It, it, sometimes these articles will come up 
when you look at them on a phone. But as soon as you try to look at the same article on a computer, they want you to register or sign in or pay some money. And this was a research paper, and what it, it was kind of a follow-up. If you remember, well, I think it was a month or so ago, there's a paper release saying that hyperbaric chamber is effective for certain conditions. This one is a follow-up, and I think that they they were in response to. It's like as you do research researches, you're va- you're and they're peer reviewed. You're trying to validate what somebody else found. So somebody else found that hyperbaric chamber was effective for bowel dysfunction, and then this study found out that that was exactly not the case, that it was not effective. So either this is going to call for another study or the original people will amend their results or it will just go nowhere. Yeah. And let's see, Long Island Beach Diver makes a rare sight. In the, we don't We don't have any of these in the Great Lakes. Seahorses, Pacific seahorses spotted in the waters off Alamotos Bay in Long Beach, California, a rare site anywhere north of San Diego. Southern California diving enthusiast Roger Hansen photographed the rare site. This is according to the Long Beach Press-Telegram. I was so excited to have a camera, Hansen said, according to the newspaper. He spent about 3,000 hours underwater during 27 years of diving. It was stunning because it's one of your bucket list things. The seahorse doesn't typically appear this far north. Sandy, the Aquarium of the Pacific, said the Movement of warmer water may have coaxed the animal northward. It's rare, I would say, in normal years, but I would say in the past year, because of the warm water influx we've had, it isn't that rare, she said. The water, the warm water patterns that come with El Nino were also credited with the appearance of yellow-bellied sea snakes in Southern California last year. Hansen saw a specific seahorse in January, but didn't have his camera. KTLA-TV reported on Sunday he was ready. I was shocked because I know it's once-in-a-lifetime moment, he said. He stayed in the frigid water a little too long after spotting a seahorse, ended up with a short stay in the hospital. What got me is, if it's warm water for the seahorses, what is warm water? Right. And I'm curious about that. And then he says it's a frigid water because he stayed too long. So I'm curious what was the water temperature. Well, then what was he diving on that he could stay too long? Yeah, I was curious about that. You know, we're, we're cold water divers, so he may have been under undergeared, maybe. Like yeah. he was just going to go, you know, he's wearing a shorty or something. He says he's eager to turn to water and look for more seahorses. And I'm then we have big water temperature just to, just to see. I've heard it's kind of cold out there. Well, up in San Francisco, you need a good suit. I know yeah. that for a fact. Well, Long Beach was 64 degrees today. Uh, so it feels like 63.9 degrees and I can't see any water temperature referenced here. So I don't know. And we don't have any Californians out here to tell us today. No, no, that's something we have to work on. So if you've been missing the chat room, you didn't really miss anything because we haven't been setting it up. I need to come up with a new way of chatting, broadcasting, broadcasting a stream, which we'll, we'll, we'll be able to do. We'll come up with something. And then we have a Guinness World Record diver training agency, Riyadh, Italia, Italy, recently smashed the record for the longest human chain underwater, creating an incredible 173-person line in the sea on Elba Island, and this is Bologna, Italy, wearing standard scuba diving equipment. The participants followed marked buoys and rope in the water before completely submerging themselves for a minimum of one minute holding hands throughout the attempt. 
and the appreciation to Guinness World Records, the spokesperson, the spokesperson for the group explained the reason behind the attempt. We wanted to do it because we wanted to show how wonderful scuba diving is, and I want to demonstrate scuba diving is able to join all the people in the world. There's a lot who need to be certified if we're going to do that. Oh, yeah. The Italian diver broke the, divers broke the record of 110 participants that was achieved by the Groupment des Professionals de la Plonge in France, and that happened in 2013. However, the longest human chain and length on ground was made up of more than 5 million people on December 11, 2004. The number joined hands to form a line 652 miles long or 1,050 kilometers. And this was in Bangladesh. That's a, that's a, that is a line, isn't it? Ah, uh, that's a lot of people. Well, I think it will be a while before we would see that diving. Uh, yeah, I think like forever. Because <laughs> you could do, you could go from Chicago all the way around the south part of the lake. That'd probably get well, you. Looking at the picture, if every one of those people in the picture stretched out arm to arm, mm-hmm. it would have triple that distance. Oh, yeah, because they're standing pretty close they're, together there. They're elbow to elbow. Yeah. So it was a hell of a thing to coordinate, I bet you. Well, was everybody required to? I mean, five million people? How do you get five million people to do anything? Yeah, and you're blocking traffic. <laughs> well, if, if, 600 miles. I, I would like to know how what the, what was the population. I mean, if if you've got 5 million people in a line and the country's 5.5 million, there's no traffic to worry about because you're all standing in the line. I would be curious if you started at one end and said, oh, and okay. pass it on, pass it on, how long it would take to go from when you said pass it on till I got to the last guy. Oof. Yeah, that would be a while. It'd be interesting to see how long that took. Or, or how about just if you just move, like you squeeze the hand of the person left of you and it went on. You'd wonder how quick you could do it that way even. And then we have an Egyptian diver, Wael Omar, to attempt a new scuba diving record in March. Egyptian is set on breaking the world diving record in March. The diver will try to break the record for the deepest technical scuba dive. In September 2014, fellow Egyptian Ahmed Gabar broke Omar's previous world record of 303 meters or 1,083 feet with a dive down to 332.4 meters or 1,091 feet. Next month, Omar set a goal of diving down to 400 meters, 1,312 feet. <coughs> now, that's, that's, that's seriously deep there. Well, what, 28-hour dive? 28-hour dive and uh, Shram, Shram El Shrik in the Red Sea. Good spot if you're going to do it. 1,300 feet. Wow. Now, what is the major reason for that? Just set the record. Remember yeah. how much we talked about that last guy who was trying that and he died? Oh, yeah. And well, the hullabaloo the, was why and for what other than setting a record that's not useful. Right. I mean, there is some things to be learned, but are they are they things that we need to know? Because it's about the logistics of having the support, having the training. I mean, this gentleman has done over a 1,000 feet before, so it's not going to be his first time. So I would give him a a better shot at doing this, but, you know, failure is always an option, especially something like this. Well, we, we know what it costs to do that cavern mm-hmm. rescue, remember? Yes. We went through that, and that was just phenomenal. So to do this, he's got to have a hell of a lot of support and got somebody uh, support him in a monetary way. Well, you wonder, since these are both in the same area, and these divers are friends, I'm betting 
he was a support diver for the other dive that broke his record. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to plot how many times they've made the attempt, and is this a way of just drawing media attention to the air, to that location? Because they've been hit. You know, Egypt has not been the tourist destination in recent years that it had been. Yeah. I think I think there's some hazard there anymore. Yeah, you know, you may, they may not be as friendly to Westerners as they had been in the past. There are certain elements who don't really care for us. Just use that Canadian accent. Yes. You know, break you break out those five passports you have. <laughs> Let's see what's the next one. We have state police dive team. And this is a, this is one of the articles that you had come up yeah. with. That was a very nice detailed piece about the 15 member team, 11 who are fully qualified primary divers and four probationary divers are full time. They do regular patrol duties at state police barracks across Maryland and come down diving gear when called upon. The team trains two days a month and also two weeks a year. They practice and go over equipment, safety protocols, dive procedures, even wear masks that are completely blacked out to simulate underwater conditions. We train for things we hope never happen, says Devalia, who works out of Berlin Barracks and has 12 years on dive team. The core team has held demonstrations Wednesday at Sandy Point State Park in the sh- an effort to show off new state-of-the-art diving helmets. They aren't clunky, clunky brass ones of old. The Kirby Morgan model KM37SS are smaller, sleeker, and stainless steel affairs. They don't show one in here, do they? It's on his face. Oh, that's... That's... Uh, oh, on, on yeah, the top, the top the photo. Bottom, that's video. Right, the other one below it looks like an aquadine or uh-huh. a full face, not a, a helmet. Right. Yeah, that's the one I had saw earlier. But that, that's a nice one. Is Would that be considered commercial or is that it not is quite... Commercial. It yeah. is a commercial hat. That's several thousand dollars, to say the least. Yeah. He's got rails on the top of the hand grips and lights there. And the manifold is for surface air communications to your suit also, and with bailout capabilities in the back. So now, is, when, you, when you do hard hat, is that to prevent objects from falling on you, hurting you, kind of like a hard hard hat in a construction site or is it do biologics if you're going to dive in contaminated water you certainly want a full head you know a a helmet the best Mm -hmm. with a good neck dam so so that that means you're not like like on a full face mask but that's all the mask is you still have the back of your head and your neck exposed and you've got a real good chance of a face mask leak in the helmet your chances for that are minimized especially if you use a double valve for your exhaust so you don't get water back into your helmet okay Makes sense. Yeah, because some of these spots that could be not so pleasant that they're well, diving in. Most of these guys are actually using supplied air surface with communications, which means they have communications, audible and video, and they're doing searches usually out of a boat that they're controlled. They're being live boating, mm-hmm. and they're not out there for fun. They're out there for searching a certain area. So they're either, a lot of work. A so lot they're, of work. they're either searching for people, they're searching for evidence. Yeah. Because underwater forensics is becoming a good, is, is a big science. And, uh, that's the kind of items they'll be trained to do, to do. Yeah. Well, the, the nice thing about that is if I'm commit a crime and I throw an object off a bridge, the odds of me going back later as the person trying to even obfuscate the crime more is going to be a challenge. So if you got a good dive team and you know where somebody was when they threw it off, 
there's a potential you're going to be able to find that item. There's a good chance. Yeah. Well, that's why we dive bridges. Yes. Oh, yeah. And we know what we find. Bridges, historic piers, pavilions, docks, all good spots. Places where people congregate near the water. So I see you are getting on the boat there for Dima. Dima sent a press release, and I think this is a slightly bit older press release that they had re- that they had announced because the date on it was 2013, but it was freshened. So I don't know if this is in response to was somebody complaining. Ah, uh, it was. It wasn't, or are they just trying to get back into the news cycle? But Dima show for 2017 and 2019 has been. Announced, so I'm going to pull it up so we get it right from them. So the byline is San Diego, California, July 18th, 2013. The DEMA Board of Directors and staff conducted a thorough review of the availability and qualified venues and confirmed the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida, as the venue for DEMA Show 2017 and 2019. As an international organization, DEMA works to benefit all its members that attend the DEMA Show. And then they go on and they talk about things, but it looked like they had done a study. Um, they had put out to, in 2012, they put out letters to Atlanta, Georgia, Denver, Colorado, Houston, Texas, uh, Las Vegas, a couple locations, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Miami, New Orleans, and San Diego, California, uh, to host it for those two years. And they had some criteria. Uh, let's see. Trying to get down to the spot where they talk about the criteria. Okay. One of the criteria is the host city should have a substantial number of direct flights coming into the city and be a hub for at least one major airline in North America international travelers. So they're talking about the ability to get in. Uh, the convention center must have continuous space for 500,000 gross square feet availability. So that's for hosting the location. Uh, have at least 30 meeting rooms capable of holding at least 50 to 100 people while using the classroom-style seating, be located near major hotels, international airport, and have a variety of cultural attractions, restaurant and events, and other entertainment appealing to the diving industry nearby. Uh, nearby hotel accommodations must be conveniently located within five-mile radius convention exhibit center up to 12,000 attendees, accommodates a minimum of 1,800 room peak night and 10,000 total room nights within DEMA block alone. The host hotel rates with a block cannot exceed $180 a night. So with those conditions, you've probably limited it pretty significantly because that's a lot of rooms. I don't see Chicago on there. Well, that was what I was – my point was going to be is why was Chicago – not included in some of the more northern locations. You know, they, because historically it's been Las Vegas, New Orleans, and Orlando have been the three locations. Uh, some people have talked about that they wanted Houston and some of these other locations. They went out and did this bid originally, but why Chicago not on there? Uh, you could dive. I mean, it's, it is in the fall, so maybe there's less diving, but where are we diving in Las Vegas? Especially for that many attendees. Yeah, Lake Mead, you can dive, but uh, again, for attendees, plenty of convention centers. Yeah, but, but, but Lake Mead, you're limited annually to a couple hundred divers. You've got thousands. Oh yeah. Coming. So, I mean, that doesn't count. I mean, just because they go, could. If, when you go to DEMA though, you're not diving. You're, you're no, no. So it's like our world of water. There's but uh, that, that's my criteria. I mean, you've got, Detroit, I think, could do it. You've got Cleveland. You've got Indianapolis. you got Chicago. 
mean, they had Denver on there. Uh, you got Milwaukee. I mean, any place that's got a convention center, um, you know, maybe they eliminated the rooms. Maybe they figured they, they couldn't get people to go to it. Transportation costs. I mean, maybe they've looked at the density of divers, but then why would Denver be on there? Yeah. So I'm not, not really sure. They, they go in, they explain what eliminated each location based on time. Uh, but that's, that's coming up. So just again, and, uh, let's see, let's, let's find out what was the location. So for 2016, which is this year, it is going to be the Las Vegas Convention Center. 2017 is going to be Orlando, Florida. See, they, they say, I think 2018 has not been decided yet, I don't believe, at least according to this. And 2019 is going to be in Orlando. So you got 2017, 2019, 2018, they don't have. So it's been Vegas, Orlando, Vegas, Orlando, but for some reason, 2018 may not be Vegas. So I don't know if that's because they're negotiating or there's a conflict, but some of the other spots where they said why they couldn't be there is that there was competing shows. Another show was going to be there at that time. Uh, but that's just kind of some of the, the nature of these events. Uh, I know their attendance has been going down, at least anecdotally. People have been saying it seems every year they go, there's less people in attendance. So you, you wonder if maybe there might need to be some other changes made. And then we have divers raise the wreckage of a Confederate ship. Let me pull this one up. I don't think I have this one currently. It's interesting, I think. You're talking about the Confederate ship, the Georgia. That's 150 years at the bottom of Savannah River. All right. She weighs many, many hundred tons. And I'm looking at the pictures of what you've got, and you've got scrap iron, maybe. They said they're retrieving an estimated 250,000 pounds of the ironclad armored siding. Now, was this the one that had to be done because they were doing something in the river? Uh, I'm not really sure. Navy divers began working in June to recover cannons, unexploded shells, and other artifacts in the riverbed. Finally started midweek on their last major task, removing an estimated 250,000 pounds of the Civil War's ironclad armor siding. The CSS Georgia was scuttled by its own crew to prevent General William T. Sherman from capturing the massive gunship when his Union troops took Savannah in December 1864, still classified as a captured enemy vessel by the Navy. The remains of the Confederate ironclad are being salvaged as part of the, a $703 million deepening of the Savannah Harbor for cargo ships. So they, they needed the harbor deepened to bring cargo in. Historical significance is evident. In everything we do, this is according to Chief Warrant Officer 3 Jason Potts, a Navy on-scene commander, said Wednesday as his crew prepared to raise the first of the three giant slabs of the armor. The CSS Georgia was a crude example of the first armored warship designed during the Civil War to stand up against cannon and artillery fire. Its 1,200-ton frame was built using three layers of timber top to 24-foot strips of railroad iron, having sections of Georgia's armor and study should reveal more about how the Confederacy compensated the South's lack of industrial base when it came to building ships and other war machines. A lot of these ironclads are built of, by house carpenters. They're not built by shipwrights, said Jeff Seymour, historian and curator for the National Civil War Navy Museum in Columbus. So what are the construction techniques? They vary from ship to ship. 
The Georgia proved so bulky its own engines were too weak to propel against the Savannah River Currents Confederacy, anchored there and clad off Fort Jackson as a floating gun battery, it was sunk without ever firing a shot in combat. After months of preparation work underwater, archaeologists, Navy divers from the Virginia Beach-based Mobile Diving Salvage Unit 2 arrived late June. The first task is to raise 132 unexploded shells, both cannonballs and rifled shells shaped like large bullets, found scattered across the wreckage site using a crane mounted on the barge. They also pulled a cannon weighing 1,000 to 10,000 pounds apiece. Would those still have been viable as explosives? My thought is, 150 years in there, are they actually... Dangerous. The second part is, if they are, they're going to be so freaking rusted. How do they make them non-dangerous? Well, the, how they typically do nowadays, they don't even take a chance. They just detonate them. But I doubt they detonated these. They they would have said if they had. So I'm guessing they're just saying unexploded, meaning they didn't explode, but that they were probably safe at this point. Because I have to believe that gunpowder will break down in water. Given well, enough time. 150 years, I can't believe it's still dry by any stretch. No, it, w- it wouldn't but, have been dry. But I thought it's really, they're, they're separated into 20 total chunks, four foot by 24, five tons each. So you've already destroyed the integrity of whatever you might have had. And looking at the pictures, it had a wooden hull that's rotted away. So how useful for historical purposes, you know, for reconstruction, you know, what are they really going to get out of this? Well, the only thing you'd be able to tell, is, and I don't know what type of welding technology they had, if any, at this point in time, but maybe there were things bent or clips made or, yeah, I'm I'm wondering what they could have discovered. So if you're an underwater archaeologist and you have an answer for us, let us know. And I'd like to know, what is the return on the investment for this type of activity? Well, the return on investment was that they didn't have a bunch of people saying you're destroying it because you're putting in the harbor. But I'm just curious, five, you know, 250,000 pounds of stuff. Now, was this rediscovered or did they know it was there all along and just had been there forever? Look at some of the uh, records for some of the divers back in the fifties. It was known to be there. Wasn't an issue till they wanted to make the, it deeper. So at that point, they had to do something. Well, liability aspect. But what if it did blow up? Yeah, driving <laughs> pilings you... into it. So the deepening is 703 million. I wonder if that included this. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Who's paying for it? I know the archaeologists aren't because they don't have any money. Unless <laughs> it's a grant, which is free money, right? Are you it sure is it? Money, anything, it's free money. I would like the free money. Yeah, I'd like Still a Still looking for it. And then you had another one, new boat dive death was accidental. I gave you that one because of the next one after it also. A diver described as being among the best in the country died after suffering breathing problem on ascent from sunken U-boat, an inquest has heard. Philip Durbin, 62, was returning from 184 feet underwater when exploring the UB-65 off North Cornwell when he suffered a medical issue. The inquest heard. The coroner said Mr. Durbin had just decided his best chance was to get to the surface, but his lung ruptured as he later pronounced dead in the hospital's death was concluded as accidental. The expedition on site, reputed to be cursed UB-65 wreck off Trevor's head, was described as challenging dive beyond the capability of most divers in this country by Andrew Cox, associate coroner of Cornwell. Philip Durbin of Minehead Somerset was among experienced group who had been exploring it in August 2014, when he suffered breathing difficulties at the depth of about 82 feet. 
Other divers in this group described how he accepted help from alternate breathing equipment was then determined to go to the surface. He was lifted on the boat unconscious. They were lifted to the hospital where he was pronounced dead on arrival. Chris Lowe, skipper of the boat, where a statement was read, said Mr. Durbin was lift, was fit and advanced diver who was very capable to go down some of the deepest wrecks and among some of the best divers in the country. Everything to live for. His wife of 40 years, Ann Durbin, said in a statement her husband never took risks and had everything to live for. The assistant coroner said Mr. Durbin had died from gas entering his bloodstream after his lungs ruptured due to pressure changes, but the events happening could only be a matter of speculation. Philip Durbin's family said further research was needed in general issue and thanked everyone to help him at the, that helped him at the time. Uh, my feeling just on hearing that is it sounds like he was having breathing problems. So some sort of, even if you are getting oxygen, you don't feel like you are? Well, you know, when she said he doesn't take risk, what I think she meant was unnecessary. Because right. at 184, you're taking a risk and you know it. Yes. So the medical issue I would go by because obviously something happened, so he did not do a proper breathing aspect perhaps on his way up. Yeah, his his the cause of death is what you get when you go from that depth and you come to the surface that quickly. But there was something that caused him to want to do that because he was a trained diver with experience, and he knew that there had to be a risk. So whatever he was feeling he thought was worse than the chance of what happened. Or the key item there is you're starting to come up, you're a little positive, you go unconscious, and if you don't dump some of the air, you're going to come up like a rocket. Yeah, but just reading where his buddies, you know, if provided that everything is factual, mm -hmm. where they were saying that he insisted on going to the surface, that, and they offered him alternate breathing. So it appears that he was down there, and then, you know, it was probably signaling that he was having a breathing problem, so they gave him their air. And then he he suffered difficulties at depth around 82 feet. So it sounds like they were coming up mm -hmm. and just he wasn't feeling right. So let's see. What's the next one? The Haunted Submarine, the one he died on. The Haunted Submarine was a German U-boat called UB-65 built in 1916. Only a week after its launch, mysterious events began to happen. There was an unusually high number of fatal accidents on the sub. The second officer was loading torpedoes when one dropped and exploded, killing him instantly and damaging the UB-65. A, a malfunction in the engine room caused three men to be overcome by fumes. They died before anyone could reach them. During a storm, a crewman mysteriously fell overboard on lockers. Unlockers. <laughs> what are unlockers? Onlookers said it looked like he had been pushed. During submarine <laughs> diving tests, one of the ballast tanks sprang a leak, left the crew without oxygen in the boat. The frantic crew were able to resurface just before they were about to suffocate. A crewman was on lookout duty tower as a submarine was preparing to dive. Suddenly, he spotted a figure on deck. Even though all the hatches are sealed, every member of the crew was supposed to be below. The figure turned, and the lookout recognized him as second officer and been killed by the torpedo blast. Ghostly figure seemed to be shouting a warning. The lookout, terrified, yelled, alerted the UB-65 captain, who also witnessed the ghost before it disappeared. Later, another crew member encountered the dead second officer in the corridor below deck on the submarine. Again, the ghost seemed to be trying to communicate with the crewman before it vanished. The U-boat started getting a reputation for being haunted, and many men refused to go on board the sub. After another ghostly incident, the torpedo gunner went insane, shouting that the ghost tormented him at night and would not leave him alone. In a fit of madness, he jumped overboard, and his body was never recovered. 
Eventually, the German naval command was forced to investigate the reported haunting and asked a priest to perform an exorcism. That seemed to do the trick, and no other ghostly apparitions were reported until the morning of July 10th. The crew claimed they saw a shadowy figure enter the torpedo room. The crewman ran into the torpedo room, came face to face with the ghost. The second officer had been killed by the explosion in that very room. The ghost was pointed to a torpedo launching bay, then it disappeared and suddenly as it had come. Later that same day, July 10th, American submarine spotted the UB-65 prepared to attack. The American commander ordered several sailors to check through periscope to make sure he had the right number when suddenly the UB-65 exploded without being fired upon. The Americans were amazed when the smoke cleared. All they could be seen was debris. There were no survivors. Well, how do they know that the ghost was there and then it exploded? An investigation determined that the human the German U-boat had tried to fire its torpedoes, but there was a malfunction. The torpedo was activated, but not launched. and exploded inside the submarine, killed the German crew on board. This is what the ghost was trying to warn the crew members about. I don't think I'd want to have been on that boat, though. No. Just too darn many things happening that wouldn't make my life very comfortable. I wouldn't be comfortable with it. Yeah. If you believe in that stuff. Not necessarily, but there are other chains of events. Plus, if you have crew members who believe in it, that can be enough. I mean, if you're not operating, you have to be operating more than 100% on those type of conditions. And if you're distracted by hauntings and you can't get to sleep at night you're you're operating impaired yeah breaking point how much water pressure can the human body take this is medicaldaily.com depending on how you look at the human body is either one of the most vulnerable things on the planet or the most resilient that truly can do amazing things heal where we were once bleeding attack and destroy unfriendly microbial uh, microbial microbial that's what it says Microbiome, okay. Microbiome invaders, even knit, and uh, just refreshed my page. Thank you. I needed to see more ads. Um, let's get back to the same spot. Microbiome invaders, even knit our own broken bones back together, but despite many of our abilities, are still pretty delicate when you consider the universe around us. Only tiny window conditions which we can thrive, and things are rather inconsequential in our universe. A dip in oxygen, shocking cold, a flare of nuclear radiation. And this ad that just popped up. <laughs> God. I had three pop up on mine. Yeah. So you're not hearing it. So I fixed that because I'm on a different computer, but you can't even read. Darn it. What, you know, what good is this on a website? You can't read a paragraph before something gets in front of you. So I'm, I'm done. Well, if you did go through it at the bottom, there's a picture of a guy free diving on a cliff underwater into the abyss. Yes. And it's like, Man, how are you going to get back up? That was uh we we covered that if, uh probably a month ago that vid that shot. Uh that was a free diver and he didn't actually go all the way down. There were support divers there to grab him and pull him back and that was done just as a uh, an interesting video shot. Yeah, cuz it's also doesn't have booties on, doesn't have chest stuff on, just pants. Looks like Yeah, that was uh what was that hole? That was the one that was, uh. Is that a blue hole? Well, this is a, that particular hole is one where a lot of free divers. Okay. Do. That was the, that was that one location where that free diver and his wife were hanging around where he was training for a world record. Okay. Uh, and I don't know, this might even be him in this video. It, we, we talked about it, but, uh, the, in the article, now that I've gotten past that, hopefully we can get, survive a little bit. Um, 
said most professional free divers don't go past 400 feet deep. The only way to test the limit on a real live human. So obviously there's no handy. Well, there's a way to test it. Yeah, volunteer. Volunteer. Well, couldn't you do a wet chamber? I mean, what's the question? How much can the body handle or how deep can you reasonably go on a breath hold? Those are two different things. I mean, I don't I mean, think you want to press down that quick in a chamber. And if the issue is the same thing, divers can die from bleeding into the lungs. Mm-hmm. In a chamber, you still got to come back up and you're going to have the same issue other than. Well, but in a, in a chamber. Air if you need it. Right. But in a, in a wet chamber, if I understand it, is it's basically a hyperbaric chamber where it's partially, it's got water in the, in yeah. part of it. So you could pop out and breathe. But if you're just looking to see what the human body could take, you could do a study, a long-term study. You could be in the chamber for weeks to get you down to a depth and get you up. So we, and I'm sure that the, the, the Navy experimental diving team has done some tests. You know, super saturation. They don't work too much on breath hold, though. No. I mean, are they only talking about breath hold in this article? Or are they talking about just physiology in general? In general, because it was, it's really nothing we didn't already know. They're basically talking about, you know, how much pressure you're going to have on yourself at four atmosphere, blah, 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 which we do. But, but see, we're, we're made of water. So water's uncompressible. So it's really just everything that's not water they have to be concerned about. Yeah, they're just saying, how much more water can you move in before you start bleeding into your lungs? Well, from what I understand is with free diving, it doesn't take long. Well, like he said, 400 feet, you're right there in your neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, something I'm not going to be messing with. No, I'm I'm just not. I, I like the, the scuba diving, and I'm not necessarily convinced I need to go down that deep. Yeah, I know I'm not, especially as I get older. I want to get older, so I'm not. <laughs> Uh, then we got some cool new potential scuba gear. Yeah. So the new snorkel buoy. I'm not necessarily sold on this item, but it, uh, so to describe it, the new snorkel buoy, and this is according to, uh, a article in Deeper Blue, helped keep a mask and snorkel afloat, afloat. It was invented by a diver, uh, scuba diver and snorkeler who lives in South Florida. It says it's happened more than once where he's dropped his mask and watch it float down to the abyss. Oh, I said him, it's her, Jonah Diamond. Having lost a couple of masks and snorkels while snorkeling, I was frustrated there wasn't a single product available to make this from happening. Stop this from happening. Losing a mask and snorkel while snorkeling or scuba diving is inconvenient to say the least. Costly, a good mask and snorkel can cost over $100 and contributes to marine pollution on the ocean bed, damaging and even killing coral and marine life. While snorkel buoy isn't a safety device, floating mass of snorkel should alert the vigilant dive boat captain that something that someone may be in trouble. A fluorescent model called the snorkel buoy glow is also available and designed for night dives. So it doesn't affect divers buoyancy and conditionally be used as a dive real float. Underwater camera float instead of a buoyancy foam. A reef marker buoy can also come in handy when cleaning the keel of your boat. That's why I don't understand. How can it be handy in the keel, clean the keel of your boat? Is it scrubby? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, this regular snorkel buoy retails for fourteen ninety five or thirteen fifty eight euros. Well, the Glow model retails for sixteen ninety five or fifteen thirty nine euros, with free shipping for orders in the contiguous United States. 
when ordered together regular and glow model retails for 2871 or 2607 euros. And let's see, what's their website? Do they say? So you take a Clorox bottle, you put a fish line on it, tie it to your snorkel and your mask, and you're good. Yes. So it's snorkelbuoy.wordpress.com because they didn't want to pony up for the $14 for the domain, I'm guessing. Is this really a problem? Only if you're the guy losing your mask. <laughs> well, I mean, I've lost my mask. I've, I, and I, and the worst thing about it is you have no idea where or why you lost it. Mine needs to have like, uh, like while fireworks. What's that? While you're snorkeling? Well, it and wasn't don't snorkeling. Snorkel? I, what happened? Don't you snorkel in water shallow enough that you can dive and get something? Yeah. Well, this was, I was scuba diving and I think I was coming out of the water and dropped it. Like, you know, I'm looking through everything and I just didn't have it. And this was at, uh, our, uh, it's where I found the milk bottle, uh, Pawpaw Lake, Eleni Bay, right there at the end of the fire lane where we oh. go in the water. Yeah, where the muck is about four foot deep. Yeah, four foot deep of muck and seaweed right to the surface. So I guess this could have helped, but while they're saying it wouldn't affect buoyancy, that'd be my big concern. How can it not affect buoyancy if it floats? Well, again, if you're snorkeling, great, but not for a diver. Yeah. So what it appears to be is something that you push and twist around the end of your snorkel. Yeah, I mean, I guess if, if it's something you're concerned with and you've experienced that or you're concerned about losing something, then it could be a good product. It doesn't seem to be too outrageously priced. Uh, I mean, I already, already find a snorkel to be a bit cumbersome, so this just makes it more so. Uh, but if, you know, if you're in the habit of dropping things, then that could be handy. And like they said, not quite a safety device, but if you're out quite a ways and you drop your snorkel, you now could be swimming in rough seas without a snorkel. Yeah, but hopefully you got a vest on. Snorkel yeah, vest. a lot of times when you, when you do these snorkeling excursions, they require a life jacket now. Never a bad habit. No. So let's see what's the next one. As I try and get back to the show notes. Rebreather? Was it a rebreather? Yeah. This isn't, this is one I had, we had a few episodes ago and we just ran out of time. Or maybe we did cover it. I think we might have just covered it in idea. And rebreathers will replace scuba gear when they're cheaper and more reliable. This was on February 5th. They said the same factors that hold back every other emerging technology, but they're still too expensive and too, still too unsteady. Despite the fact that technology in a rebreather's base dates back to the 19th century, dozens of manufacturers offer different styles of rebreathers, suit divers' needs, and the system keeps getting cheaper, safer, and more reliable. There's no doubt rebreathing diver popularity is trending upward, yet still a fringe element in the scuba scene were popular for technical divers, underwater video, military applications. Rebreathers still not part of standard training majority of most divers. My opinion on a rebreather is that cost, it needs to be I'd, I'd say if it was two or three hundred dollars more than a nice regulator set, you know, two thousand dollars would probably be about the price. And that doesn't count training. Right. Doesn't count training, but you know, have it included in the training. You know, it would be like how dive computers now have, have become part of the basic open water training. The rebreather would have to fit into that same space. And then the consumables, it needs to be ten dollars. For a day of diving, I think that would be reasonable right now. I'd say it's probably in the 30 to $40 per day of diving for a rebreather. 
just for the, the sorb. And they always charge more for the less, uh, you know, for the canisters because it's yeah. supposed to be a convenience. So I, yeah, they got some things they over- overcome. They're really going to have to change their business model. <laughs> and I think many of them have, are a little apprehensive to do that. <laughs> I would read, I'd read the head of you there for a second. Uh-huh. Uh, I got a kick out of this. Problem was inconsistency in training. A lot of instructors became rebreather instructors when they had no business teaching people how to breathe. <laughs> uh, rebreather diver. Unfortunately, a lot of people died with the, with the early inspirations, which kind of called out the herd regarding instructors. <laughs> because a lot of these guys either got sued or lost their asses, or they just left town and never talked to free breathers again. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you could be a moron, but if you killed people, then that kind of got you out of the sport. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, the sensors have improved. Well, and, if you got the darn things cheaper as regular gear, of course you'd go to rebreathers. Right. Because if you did that, then it's back to the, you're trying to make it foolproof, idiot-proof, ain't going to happen because same thing with scuba, you know? Well, what they're going to have to do, and unfortunately I, I would not like it if they did this, but imagine having it to where I'm. it has to be serviced because servicing is going to be critically important in a rebreather. Uh what if when you got it serviced, a, a clock started at that moment in time? And if you didn't have it reserviced or reset, then it, it bricked and you couldn't use it. I mean, you're going to have to do those type of things. You know, have, have sensors, you know, instead of having two or three sensors, have 20 sensors. And knowing that in the course of a year, the chance of all 20 sensors going bad isn't going to happen and have the sensors be so tiny that they all fit in the same space. I mean, those are the type of improvements you need to make. You know, the sensor's got to be 50 cents a piece as opposed to, what are they, probably $20, $30 a piece now. It's just got to be more mass product, uh, more automatic, less chance for failure. I mean, there's so many things that you can do wrong with it. Somebody who's properly trained, if you're thinking about becoming a tech diver, I think you're on the path where you could be a rebreather diver, but if... You know, if you're the type of person who leaves your gear wet in the car, <laughs> you know, doesn't take care of it, doesn't rinse it out, then probably rebreathers isn't for you. This is really an ad for Poseidon, by the way. Is that what it is? Well, when you get down to it, because it then goes and talks about, uh, you know, with the new Poseidon, does uh, self-diagnostics on the surface, 58 checks, back to this idiot proof. Mm-hmm. And if it works and long you breathe, you're good shape to go. Yeah. Yeah, and they, this is what they're saying. The new uh, Poseidon is. Yeah. Well, you, um, have you had a chance to try the Poseidon? Not this one here. Yeah, because I, uh, Jim Schultz and I, when we when we were trying the rebreathers out, Poseidon was one of them, and it, it was a nice unit. Uh, it, the one I had had battery problems, so it was beeping a lot of times down there. But it was a, uh, it was a, um, I, I, I could see myself someday having a rebreather. Again, if the price were right. Well, the price is right. The time of my life is right to when I've got that kind of disposable money. Uh, I mean, I like not having the bubbles and you know, being able to get closer to the fish. But again, for our kind of diving in the river, I don't think it'd be applicable. No, no, I don't think, I, I think the sweet spot for rebreather is, you know, deeper than 30 feet. I mean, yeah. Bob, I've seen, you know, Bob's done it in the river. He's done 15, 20 feet, but heck, you can, when you can get an hour plus out of an 80, you know, there's just some things that are just so simple and they work. Yeah. Let's see. We had one more, I think. 
Oh, I, I, I missed it. I didn't put it in here, but there was, uh, uh, if you follow our, follow us on Twitter, I posted it there and that was the two man submersible that goes down to one mile. A mile? That's what they say. One mile. A little two man submersible here. I'll, I'll, let me go look it up and I'll paste it into the, uh, chat for you. Uh, dun, dun, dun. Speedy right. personal two-person submarine. That's gotta be pretty uh, healthy there. Yeah. So here, oh crud! I'm 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 gonna send it to you. And I found the first weakness of my two-computer system is that I'm not on Skype on this other computer. So here it's gonna come to you via email. Oops. Oh, okay. I also gotta it. manage two keyboards. Uh, so. I do see the last item you had was uh, Dale Hollow. Yeah, well, we're waiting for this to come. Let's talk about Dale Hollow. That's a, they, they say it's going viral on Facebook, which just means a bunch of people are looking at it. But that well, is, uh, can you, can, uh, do you have, you have any experience with well, Dale Hollow? Well, the used to go down there, God, 30 years ago. But back then, it was, it was fresh. Well, mm-hmm. after 30 years, the buildings and stuff had deteriorated all the hell. So the only thing you got basically is the cemeteries to look at. There's a bridge or so, mm-hmm. but the houses and stuff are all collapsed. Yeah, the, the photo they're talking about that's uh, gone viral is the foundation for a school, and you can see it from above. People are taking photos of it, and you're seeing it, and that's what that's went viral. But you're saying that this is a popular dive site for a long time now. Yeah, like I said. Uh, Golly, I'm just remembering, uh, I think Bob Jensen even went there. He used uh-huh. to run a houseboat. A couple of guys would go up there and then dive Dale Hollow. Yeah. It so was the, rather totally recently filled up and the town was more to look at. Yeah. They said, according to the person in the article, the U.S. government bought the town in 1942 in preparation for the waters that would be ri- rose, rise up. The Corps engineers built the, da- the dam and impounded Dale Hollow Lake for flood risk reduction in 1943. So this is uh, just a a man-made lake. And there's a lot of these around the country, different times in our history. just depends that this one was more recent than many. So anything that was there got sunk. Yep. Did you get that link to that two-person submersible? Uh, On email? Yeah, it'll be in your Outlook. Let me redo it, and I have to go back out to get in. You know how that goes. Not yet. Yeah, mine says it's been sent to you. Oh my gosh, we're at twelve twenty. We're actually oh, on Friday. You're turning into a pumpkin. I I am. Well, that's going. Let's uh, let's see what we got coming up. Did you have you gotten any diving since the last ice dive? I got two cents. <laughs> two two cents. That you, <laughs> I, I'm being lapped. Uh, well, I, we did one last week. Uh, Happened to be in the dive shop. Jim got a phone call. The guy says, I lost my phone. Jim looked at me and said, do you want to go diving? Because I was, I went in and said, who's diving? Nobody's diving. So we went diving. We recovered his phone in Gravel Lake. It's out towards Lawton. Uh-huh. And it's one of these, well, I dropped it here. We'll cut the ice for you. Okay. Got there. Ain't no ice cut because the guy had to go to work to chainsaw with him. And then it's like, well, let me see if we can find out where we were. And there's fishermen all over the damn lake. And there's holes like you wouldn't believe all over the place. So he's looking. He said, well, I'm looking for three holes that if you put your hands out, you can hit all three holes at the same time. And by holes, I'm talking a pie plate, smaller uh-huh. 
maybe a saucer. So we're looking, it's like, well, do you mean these three or these three or the, and it's like, I'm saying you tell only well, because you know, that X on the water, that's the way I felt it was. So we let him pick the spot. We cut where he said, and, uh, he said, well, I, I could put my light down and I could see it reflecting off, you know, from the light. And it's like, okay, I hear what you're saying. And you saw my pictures I posted on it. Mm-hmm. Well, that which looked like nice and stuff like clay and sand was muck. Yes. <laughs> put your hand in it, forget that. It was covered by a layer of maybe three or four inches of vegetation that when you moved that, you were in muck. And after your first hand went in, that third picture I showed was black. That was taken by my camera. Oh. <laughs> there was no visibility. That wasn't just a blank slide put, and that was part of the video. See, that's when a, when an underwater ROV might be handy. Nah, I don't think it made any damn difference. <laughs> I mean, after that first two feet in there looking for something, there was no visibility. But uh, we were successful. Oh, you did find it? Oh, yeah, I did find it. Wow. Came on up and... uh we did some posing with the pictures of listening to his phone. And then uh, Jim went in and get his time in, and he wound up with a first-stage regulator leak. Uh-oh. So he did have an abbreviated dive, but he did get wet, yeah, and it well, was under nice. the ice. And the visibility was easy, 20 feet. Excellent. Uh, but that ice was going to hell in the handbasket, even as we were up there speaking. By the time we got out, we had probably two and a half inches of sag around the hole. Oh, wow. And uh, when I was out there, I had the diver safety, that huge flotation vest mm-hmm. we have. I had that on. Had my ice cream, uh, clip-ons to the boots. Had the little spikes around my neck. Because where the guys were fishing in one area was five inches. That was four inches. Maybe 40 feet from it was two inches. So I don't, I didn't trust the ice a lot there. No, you're getting into the I don't like being out on ice range. Well, in the next two days, I've had uh, four people go in and two of them drown in the areas around us. Wow. It's not worth it, guys. Why Why are people ice fishing when it's that thin? And, and you can, but just wear the proper gear, like flotation devices. Oh, it's not cool. Life has to you know, wrinkle your shirt. degrees on the surface. You were hot. You got on the ice for a few minutes with that wind blowing. Then it got a little chilly. But you could walk around there in, in, in your T-shirt almost. Well, yeah. or your sweatshirt. But yeah. you, you didn't want your bulky coat. I look sort of foolish with that monster vest on. But See, and I, I get uncomfortable when there's water on the ice. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's, I'm, uh, yeah. And, and we can breathe underwater. I mean, we've got a little bit of an advantage. We're, we're, we're in equipment that is allow, that allows us to be in, in water that could freeze any minute, any minute. But when you're, a fisherman just sitting up there in your jeans and a t-shirt and an ice shanty yeah. and three inch ice. That's a little crazy. Yeah. Oh, I get the submarine item. That's something worth showing next time. But as a side note, this is not new. Uh, this bubble device mm-hmm. like this one here was actually tried out here in Michigan several years ago. And I went to take a look at one similar to this, not as uh, futuristic looking. And the guy got killed uh, a couple of weeks later. Uh, it, it, it collapsed. Oh, really? Yeah. So oh. this looks like it, but it obviously modified and improved upon. Yeah. But I bet that's where the idea came from. Yeah. Well, we've covered it a few times. I think, uh, 
and I'll do some research before next week, but the, the company that made it has been working on it for a while now. Yeah. This was a nice one to look at, though. Yeah, the, the companies that, that create these are really small companies, three to seven people companies making them, and you know, you, you've, it's not a huge market. There could be. I think that's what they're hoping is that, you know, a two-person submersible where you have a pilot, you know, kind of like, kind of like the helicopters. I can remember as a kid going up at the fair, you know, 50 bucks. They took you up in a helicopter and you flew around the county and came back. Yeah. And, you know, it was a five to 10 minute flight. You got to see things. If you could do that for underwater, you know, take people down to Max Rec or, you know, uh, actually one that would be beautiful to see would be the Ann Arbor Five. Mm-hmm. I mean, to see it sitting out there, I think, I think that might even encourage people to become divers. You know, if you had some nice wrecks like that or, or some of them where you see tech divers, cause the, the, these submersibles are easily can go a thousand feet. So you do some of the more exotic wrecks where they're just sitting there. Well, I just sent you another photo or a picture or site. Uh huh. But these are 2.7 million submersible. These are for the super rich submariners. Yeah, kind of the uh, Bransons of the world or the. Well, uh, the if you can afford those big jets, you can afford these, these subs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that one's a nice one. That, that one looked, that one inspires confidence though, doesn't it? That looks a little oh, beefy. Yeah, it starts a military grade. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. But see, that's why they're doing the, uh, the big dome ones is because they're trying, they're going after the, uh, tourist market. You know, they want you to be able to see everything. So, uh, did you happen to do any of the trade shows? Last week was the Ann Arbor show, Ford Seahorses. I did not go. Um, the selection was very nice. I know Kevin went and a few guys did go, but not other than Kevin. I'm not sure who else from the club went. Uh, a lot of good shipwreck presentations, uh, but there wasn't a lot of technical courses that I wanted to uh, listen to, like regulators, photography for the GoPro. Mm-hmm. So I did not go, but those who went had a really good time and enjoyed the heck out of it. Excellent. Yeah, I I was busy building a robot like I was last week. The robot's completed. Now it's up to fine-tuning. It's they, they do bag and tag, so it's now sealed in a bag, not to be open until the event. There is an exception for three two-hour days allowed between now and the first event of the year. But uh, right now it's bagged up and catching up on sleep because there's been some long days building this robot. We'll put some photos out there so people who are interested. First Robotics, really amazing program. Uh, and then this week is Our World Underwater in Chicago, Illinois. Yes, sir. Um, I haven't decided yet if I'm going to go. I'm I'm hoping I can, but uh, I just got to get it cleared with spending so much time doing other things I may not. I see that there are muddies who are trying to arrange carpools. Yep. Sounds like, sounds like Kevin is volunteering to pick people up on his way. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's coming probably one of the farthest away, at least of the, the normal mud club group. Yeah. And, and uh, when he was looking for a ride. Yeah. Bob was looking for a ride. Um, yeah. I just haven't decided if I'm going to go yet. I'll, I'll, I'll know probably late tomorrow if I'm going to go or not. Yeah. There are, there are some people going, but some are going for three days, some are two days, yeah, some are for night. So unless I, I would like to be a, Oh, excuse me. <coughs> Recovering from a cold. I would like to sometime do the three day thing, but if you're not doing the three day thing, it's hard to keep busy for more than a couple hours. If you're just going for the shelf floor, you can pretty much hit it in about two hours. Yeah. 
And I went through the listing this time, and there's still a tremendous number of uh, vacation-type spots and not as many equipment vendors as I like or any other specialties that I'm interested well, I saw that they're really pushing the fact this year that at Our World Underwater you can buy stuff at the show. They're saying they're one of the few shows where you can buy gear. Some people were talking about they got some really sweetheart deals on Sunday because they didn't want to take anything back. And you're talking $100 dry suits. I could see that. And it's like you could not afford not to. A couple of guys whom I do know but are not in our club, he had some coins, so he bought a good number of them and sold them on eBay within a week. Oh, wow. Made a very nice profit. Yeah, if you can do that, that's not a uh, bad thing to do. I've also seen there's a, there's two or three camera retailers there, and they usually have show specials where you can get a, a camera, a light, a housing, all together for a reasonable price. Well, and like he said, he, he did get some good deals, but it was stuff that he could not use or fit because it was either extra small, tall, long leg, that kind of stuff. But on eBay, you announce it. There's a lot of people out there. Oh, yeah. And this was, you know, it's new gear, maybe a weird color, but, uh, but yeah, like, you can. And like he said, if you see something you want, though, that's in demand, you get it when you can get it. You don't right. wait and say, I'll try to get it on Sunday because no. I don't want to take it with them. Yeah, no, they, it's, you can't count on deals like that. And then I understand that Kevin, the, the muddy who's been doing a lot of research this year, he, he had a speaking engagement. Yes, he did. And, uh, he spoke up at the, um, I, I gave a program there last year uh, on treasure hunting, and he did one this year on shipwrecks and some of the research he'd done, and he had a very, very good response. They really yeah. enjoyed his program. Yeah, the, one response. of the comments was that they couldn't believe that was his first time doing it because they said it was so nice. Yeah. So great job, Kevin. Glad that worked out for you. We need to get it on video. He needs to, to get it put together and posted. So we're getting that time of year. I, we're we're within a month of uh, potentially hitting Lake Michigan. Yeah, yeah. We've done it before, and I don't think there's a lot of ice out there. So if we get some, you know, a week of 45 degree days, we're they're certainly going to be in the potential. And Bob having that zodiac with an outboard, you don't have to wait for it to be that warm. I haven't seen too much. It's been really, really uh, rough out there, though. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's it needs to settle down a little bit. Uh, but I'd like to get out just to say that we did it again. That first year I went out in Lake Michigan, we did it in March, and I haven't done it since. In fact, that was one of my first Lake Michigan dives was in was in March that year. I kind of think they were hazing us a little bit. <laughs> so we have anything we want to plug before we get to that time of the show? Uh, let's see. Other than our world, about the only major coming up is going to be in March, and we'll talk about it later. We'll be... Uh, go ships. Yeah, but the only thing I can think of is, and we'll call it the un- uncompensated ad of the week. Uh, and this one is from, uh, Jim Schultz's, uh, dive shop, uh, Wolf's Diver Supply. <clears throat> and there's, they're reminding everybody that it won't be long until the ice is gone off the lakes. So Why wait to start diving in June or July when you can be warm and dry in the crystal clear water we see every spring? Spring is dye suit season. Make sure you stop in the shop, take a look at some dry suits. They have uh, three Viking suits with new seals ready to go, and this is under $500 each. There's also a Viking Protec that is like new for under $700, never used beside Uni suit. 
for under 900 not to mention a fantastic aqua lung fusion shoots that dive with the mobility of a wetsuit but keep you completely dry. They said if you want a custom suit, they have some fourth element Argonauts and Kevlar for under $3,000. So they said stop in and talk to them. And this goes for any of your dive shops. I'm sure if you drop into your dive shop, they'd love to see you this time of year. We are in February 26, March. So get your gear in to get it serviced. You haven't already because it's not going to get any better. If you drop it in in April or May, you're going to be right in the rush. And you may have to wait a bit. So, I'd say it's that time of the show. Are you ready? I am ready, sir. An 86-year-old scuba diver walked into a crowded waiting room and approached the desk. The receptionist asked, yes, sir, what are you seeing the doctor for today? There's something wrong with my dick, he replied. The receptionist became irritated and said, you shouldn't come into a crowded waiting room and say things like that out loud. Why not? You asked me what was wrong and I told you, he said. The receptionist replied, now you've caused some embarrassment in this room full of people. You should have said something was wrong with your ear or something else and discussed the problem further with a doctor in private. The man replied, you shouldn't ask people questions in a room full of strangers so the answer could embarrass them. He walked out, waited several minutes, and then he re-entered. The receptionist smiled smugly and asked, yes, there's something wrong with my ear, he stated. The receptionist nodded approvingly and smiled, knowing he had taken her advice. And what is wrong with your ear, sir? I can't pee out of it. (laughs) 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 You must have been a crotchety-year-old man, huh? Well, he was 86-year-old scuba diver, so I think that goes without saying. Okay, (laughs) I can that. Oh. So on that note, go out there and get wet. And be safe. Find the button. Button, button. Here we go. Scuba Obsessed episode 274 is recorded live February 23rd, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where winter has returned. And And probably is building a little bit of ice. (laughs) I think you said February 23rd, didn't you? Isn't it 23rd? No, it's the 25th. 25th? February? Should I make it? Oh, that's a, I think I blame that on my eyesight. <laughs> uh, okay. I'll let you holler that again. Scoop Obsessed recorded live. What do I, what do I do? We record live. Episode 274 is recorded live February 23rd, 2016. You said it again. 23rd. Well, it's because I didn't change it in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, here, I better save that. Pavla, Pavla. Okay. <laughs> Episode 274 is recorded live February 25th, 2016. I should have said, I, I've got it written 25th-erd. 